Ahoy, and welcome in to another exciting episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Makler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health, alongside Mariska, the three-toothed Patterdale Terrier, who is currently licking her paws in the background. So again, if you hear Mariska licking her paws, we just went for a little walk, so she wasn't satisfied exactly, but it's because we had to get back because I've got an exciting guest today. And so um, remember, if you want to email Mariska and I, you can reach us at daniel.makler at live.com and ask any of the questions that you have. But today I've got Spencer uh, Bishens on, and he has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. After law school, he worked in the private sector for two years prior to joining the Social Security Administration in 2010. He worked as the, at the Appeals Council for almost four years, reviewing thousands of disability decisions for compliance with SSA's complex rules and procedures. He then worked at the hearing level for seven years, where he drafted almost 2,000 decisions for SSA administrative law judges. After working for SSA for more than 10 years, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system his first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. So again, I'm really excited to have Spencer on because as I've mentioned before on the podcast, my own family and many of my clients have struggled with trying to get benefits. So Spencer, would you mind telling us a little bit about what, what really brought you to writing the book and to this point in your life? Yeah, I wrote the book because there's a lot of information that the government has on their website. The Social Security website has a lot of statistics and things that say, like, here's how you apply for disability benefits. But the problem is there's a lot that they're not telling you. They don't explain the barriers that are put in your way. They don't explain why they're denying so many cases. They don't explain all the difficulties that claimants have when they're going through the disability application process. And I wanted to make sure that disability claimants and their medical providers knew exactly how the system works, why it often fails claimants, and what both claimants and their medical providers, such as therapists and counselors, can do to help the claimant present the best possible case to give that person the best chance of being approved. Yeah, I mean, we talked a bit um, before the, having recorded the podcast. And one of the things I learned from you just in that short, the brief interaction was I have a client who she's been turned down by SSA several times. And when I wrote a letter for her, she has um, severe crippling anxiety and depression and also um, early onset dementia. And mm -hmm. she used to work as a property manager and she couldn't do that job anymore. Right. And in the letter that I wrote to help support, I was writing why she could never do that job again. That's so can right. you help explain like why that's not going to help with SSA? Like the, the fact that she can't do that specific job that she had done for so many years anymore, is that's not going to get her benefits. Yeah, well, there's actually two things that I heard with what you just said. Um, as you said in the intro, I wrote almost 2,000 decisions for Social Security judges. So I just, when I read a medical record or hear a situation, my brain automatically fires mm -hmm. on certain things. And I caught two things with what you just said. The first thing, which I think is what you're alluding to, is that the definition, uh, definition of disability is not whether you can do just your prior work, but also whether you can do any other work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy. 
And I explain that thoroughly in part two of the book where I go through the five step sequential evaluation process. First, at step four, Social Security will ask if you can do your past work. But if the answer is no, then they'll ask if you can do any other work. And if you can, they're still going to find that you're not disabled. But there's something else I heard. You said something about writing an opinion saying, my patient can't do her past work. Mm -hmm. Let's say you knew the five-step sequential evaluation and you wrote, and my patient can't do any other work that exists in significant numbers of the national economy. Mm -hmm. You might think, aha, that's going to get my patient approved. It will not. That's mm -hmm. not a, actually a medical opinion, which might surprise you because you are an authoritative medical source on mental health matters. How could saying that your patient can't do any work or saying my patient is disabled and unable to work? How is that not a medical opinion? The answer is, what is the definition of disabled or how do you mm -hmm. define unable to work? That's actually a legal definition. And the only person who can decide if someone can't do a job is the judge, the social security judge. So a medical, but a lot of medical providers don't know this, right? So it's really common to see medical opinions that say, my patient can't work. My patient can't do this. My patient is disabled and the medical providers they, they think they're helping. They're really, truly trying to help their patients. And the patients probably get that and think, ah, this is going to be a slam dunk now, right? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the first thing the judge does with that opinion is disregard it. Because again, it's, that's the judge that decides if you can do that job or any other job. And so what medical opinions instead need to say is functioning. Here's, mm. in other words, it's not that the person can't do a job, it's why. My, my patient cannot focus and concentrate for more than two hours in an eight-hour day. That's a specific limitation that would preclude all full-time employment if you can't be on task mm -hmm. more than two hours per day. But yeah, just saying my patient can't do her past work, that's not enough. Even saying my patient can't do any work, that would also not be enough. But unfortunately, as I said, most people just don't know that. And Social Security doesn't tell you that, right? They say, give us your medical evidence. Mm -hmm. If you have a medical opinion, have your providers send us a medical opinion. But they don't tell you exactly how it needs to be worded. And so many people find themselves in this unfortunate situation where they have a medical provider such as yourself who's really trying to do their best to help. It's just that the claimant and the medical provider they don't know how to, the medical provider doesn't know how to help and the claimant doesn't know what kind of evidence they need. And it's, it's things like that. That's why I wrote the book because it's so unfortunate that someone who might have a really debilitating medical condition and maybe they truly can't do that work or any other work, they just don't know how to prove that to social security. And so I wanted the claimants and their medical providers and their support system, their family, to know how the system works so that they can work within the system to present the best possible case to the judge. Well, and I think it's, it's challenging because there's also multiple different kinds of systems. So for example, like for a person, for a doctor, like for workman's comp or something else like that, they might actually have to say this person can't work for X amount of time. But the, the right letter for workman's comp would not be the right kind of letter for SSA, it sounds like. 
That's a great point. And, and again, it comes back to the definition of disability. It's because workers' comp claims are asking, from my experience anyway, and I've seen a lot of workmen's comp claims because a lot of people will then go file for disability. And I'll be able mm -hmm. to see the workman's comp evidence. And my understanding is those doctors are evaluating two things. The first thing they're asking is, did this injury happen at work? Is it work related? If it happened beforehand, if it was pre-existing at the time the person was doing the job, it's not a workman's comp thing. And the second question is, can this person go back to doing that specific work? So like take a forklift driver, because for some reason, forklift drivers end up like, that's just a very popular occupation for workman's comp. They'll say, well, you were injured. Did you have that situation before you, you know, that, in, that, that situation happened, that incident? Uh, and even if you did, even if that injury was somehow work-related, could you go back to being a forklift driver? And a lot of times, even if there's an injury, They'll say, no, you can't go back to being a forklift driver. And people think, that's great. And then when my workman's comp runs out, oh, I'll go file for Social Security. That doctor said mm -hmm. I can't do that work. But as we just talked about, that opinion doesn't say anything about your ability to do other work in the national economy. So it's either not very useful for Social Security or it can be downright just bad for the claimant. For example, if that opinion says, you can go back to being a forklift driver. That's really bad for your social security claim because the doctor has just identified a specific mm -hmm. occupation that you could do even with your injury and work-related limitations. A similar situation happens with the VA. As a mental health provider, I'm guessing you probably have some patients who are veterans. Mm -hmm. yep. and, it's, and it's a similar thing because the VA is evaluating if you have uh, some kind of disability that's connected to service, it's called a service-connected disability, but then they're evaluating your fitness for duty. So it's really similar to a workman's comp claim. So even if they say you have a 100% service-connected disability, you have these things that happen to you that are related to your prior service, and we've decided you cannot go back to uh, to your normal military duties, you have no fitness for duty, so we're going to find you eligible for VA benefits, that doesn't mean you're going to be eligible for social security disability because maybe you could do other work, other non-military work, less physically strenuous, less emotionally strenuous that exists in the national economy. So I've seen a lot of 100% service connected cases where the person was approved but unfortunately, I've also written my fair share of denials for people who had a 100% service-connected disability. And that can be really confusing, right? Because you think 100%, that's a guarantee. Of course, they'll be approved. But it's not a Social Security 100%. It was a VA 100%. They're different government agencies with completely different rules. They're different programs. And that's great in the sense that it means you can collect benefits from both programs simultaneously because they're completely different programs. But of course, the downside is Social Security's definition is different. And so even though you may have been eligible for a workman's comp or a VA case, that doesn't make you eligible for Social Security disability. Now, for uh, my brother's in a very challenging position in that he's got an adult son who has bipolar disorder and is um, very aggressive. 
and has will find periods of time when he's able to work, but then he will get fired for acting out aggressively or doing things like that. So where would you encourage a family like that to begin? And he can't, you know, like he only, he has to live only on the, essentially the charity of my brother who pays for an apartment for him, who does these other things, you know, gets him transportation, but it's very difficult because he, he has work. He works, maybe he'll get two or three jobs in the course of a year, get fired from all of them. But right. so he, it sounds like then he would not even begin to qualify because he keeps getting hired for things. And again, yep. he, he hasn't. So but he, tell me but more, he's not, where would but he start? Yeah, but he's not keeping the job, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually something that Social Security judges love to see. They okay. love to see someone is trying their best. They're getting the treatment they need. They're trying to work. You would think if he's being hired, that might be detrimental to his claim. But the fact that he's trying to work and he can't mm -hmm. maintain a job, if you think about it, that's actually really good evidence that he can't maintain full-time work in the national economy, right? Whereas uh, claimants who come in and say, I have to lie down all day long, I'm in too much pain, I can't do anything. And the judge says, well, have you looked for work? No, I can't do anything. Those claimants actually tend to be less credible in the eyes of many judges because, well, how do you know you can't work if you're not even trying, right? So I think that's actually great evidence from a vocational standpoint. And the thing is, as you well know, it's really hard to prove mental health impairments and to link them to work-related limitations. Because even if someone has a diagnosis of depression or anxiety or PTSD or maybe personality disorder, how do you then say what that person can and can't do? It's not easy. And I, I'm a lawyer, the social security judges are lawyers. We're not given medical training as far as how to diagnose someone. Our medical training is limited to how to read and review the medical records and be able to understand what those records prove, right? So it's it's really legal training, it's evidentiary training. So we, but we have to understand what's in the medical records. We have to understand what the different aspects of a mental status exam are, what the findings mean, the difference between moderate and marked and extreme. And so we have to know and be able to look out for evaluations showing decompensation, showing an inability to concentrate, showing sustained work-related limitations over a period of time that would tend to support a finding that a person is unable to focus, concentrate, interact with others, have supervision, adapt, manage their symptoms. I'm sure you're familiar with all those terms. I only know them from the training I was given in social security yeah. so that I could understand records and reports that you're writing. Um, so yeah, it's important for that, that claimant and that family and their support system to understand the definition of the impairments to understand what needs to be proven and what social security is looking for, the kind of evidence they wanna see so that when that patient and maybe their family, family member that's going with them, right? If they have a mental health impairment, they may not be able to advocate on their own behalf necessarily. So, but it's important that that, that patient and their support system understand what kind of records they need to get from their mental health treatment providers 
to show that the person cannot do full-time work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy over the course of a full 12 months. And as I said earlier, medical opinions are really, really useful, but they need to know what has to be in that medical opinion, right? So they can go to that person's counselor or therapist and say, we would really love it if you would write a medical opinion for Billy. It can't just say that he can't work. You have to explain the specific reasons he can't work, his functional limitations. And every time you say he has this limitation, relate it back to something you observed or some sort of test that was performed, something objective from one of his treatment sessions. So he cannot be supervised for more than four hours in an eight hour day. And I know that because during my treatment sessions with him, I would give him directions and half the time he would not be able to listen to, understand and follow my directions. Mm -hmm. So therefore, as his treatment provider, I know that he would only be able to do this for half of an actual eight hour workday. That's really solid evidence, right? You have diagnosed him, you've observed him, and then you've taken what you've learned and translated it into a specific work-related limitation. And that's really good evidence then for that judge to say, I now have exactly what I need from this person's mental health provider to find that he can't do work that exists in the national economy, even though he was trying to work. Mm -hmm. The fact now, that he was trying to work doesn't matter because it, he wasn't able to sustain it. And that's consistent with what his counselor said about why he can't sustain it. So now, again, what about the people who are, because of their mental health disorder, they're struggling with either treatment compliance or even going along with the program? For example, one of my clients, uh, her mother has paranoid schizophrenia and refuses to acknowledge that she's sick, but right. she tends to get hospitalized three times a year or more for often a period of month, two months at a time. But she, mm -hmm. if you ask her, I'm not sick, it's all these other people. So how, yeah. like, how can families help a family member who is, you know, they're not really truly aware of their own mental illness. Schizophrenia is obviously really, really unique in that sense, right? And there is a social security uh, listing for schizophrenia. I believe it's 12.03 that lists the elements, but it's unique in the sense that that person could walk into a social security hearing and say, I don't want to apply. I want to withdraw my application. I'm not sick. I'm not disabled. And that's literally a symptom of their condition. Right. So that's obviously a really difficult one to deal with. Um, unfortunately, there are some judges who would say, okay, if you want to withdraw, I can't force you to, to have an application or the agency itself. You know, if someone wants, if, if you try and file on behalf of someone else and that, and you don't have legal guardianship over that person, uh, and that person goes to social security and says, no, I don't consent to that. If they're an adult, you can't force them to file a disability mm -hmm. claim. Right. So I guess maybe that would matter if you had some sort of legal status to file a document on their behalf. But let's just say we have a situation where they're not necessarily, they don't go to the trouble of withdrawing their application. They're just constantly saying, I'm not sick. Well, that's one of those things where, yes, there are some judges who might say, well, the claimant says they're not sick. I guess they're not disabled. But I think most judges, if there's a schizophrenia diagnosis and there is a report from a mental health professional saying what you just said, I, I have observed her. 
she's got hospitalizations. She's got marked limitations in these areas. Um, there, th that judge would probably accept that diagnosis. As far as there's something else you're referring to called failure to follow prescribed treatment. And that's like where if someone's got emphysema and they're still smoking and their doctor says, stop smoking, and they don't, a judge could say, well, I'm finding you not a credible disability applicant because you're telling me you can't work and you're disabled because of your lung disease and you're still smoking. So you're obviously not trying to do anything to, to change that. But that's different when it comes to schizophrenia, because again, the failure to follow the treatment is the symptom, is <laughs> itself evidence of the impairment. And I have, I have written some decisions for schizophrenia where what the, the judge did is it, they wanted to accept what the treating doctor was saying, but it conflicted with what the claimant was saying. So they just got a third party medical expert and they said, the claimant says there's no problem. Their treating doctor says there's a problem. Independent medical expert, can you evaluate uh, who's a psychiatrist, psychologist? Tell me what's going on here. A lot of times with schizophrenia, that person will say, yeah, the doctor's right. The claimant is saying there's no problem because that's literally a symptom indicating there's an enormous problem. And if the judge has, you know, like that, this independent tie-breaking opinion, they can cite that and say, all right, my, my doctor who's reviewed everything says this is clearly a huge problem and this person is disabled and, and really needs some treatment and some help. And the other reason judges tend to want to approve that kind of claim more is because they know that person needs help. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of the reasons that person's not following treatment is maybe they can't afford it. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know how that works as far as if someone needs to be committed to a residential facility, if that's paid for by the state or not. But disability applicants, once they're approved for SSDI, get access to Medicare. And so it's a, a lot of the times it might be the case that that mental health condition they have just been not well treated because the person couldn't afford or access good treatment. And so that's actually a really beneficial reason for that judge. It's an incentive for that judge to approve that case so that they can get treatment, knowing that case can be reviewed in a couple of years by Social Security to see if with appropriate treatment, they're still unable to work, or maybe now they can work. Social Security disability benefits in most cases are not intended to be permanent it's intended to be benefits so that you can get treatment so that you can improve and go back to work so that you can continue paying into the social security system and that's the way social security really does treat the system particularly for people under 50. if you're approved They'll go back every couple of years and send you a questionnaire and say, tell us how you're doing, send us your updated records. We want to see if you're still disabled. And so, but that's a really good thing for people who have mental health impairments because it then it does allow the judges to feel like, okay, I can go ahead and approve this claim. This person's having problems right now. I feel good about approving this claim so that this person can get access to treatment, even though. I don't think they need it for the next 25 years. It seems like they need it for the next year or two. And so I, I do think that a lot of judges, because of the temporary nature 
of social security disability approve mental health claims that they might not have approved, except that they know it's probably going to be temporary. Well, so like, for example, in the case of my nephew, let's say he were approved, but he did want to start going back to work. And let's say he tried working and gets hired somewhere. When he mm -hmm. gets his first paycheck, does he have to report that to Social Security? And like, so he can stop the payments or would he be responsible if he keeps taking the payments when he's getting, or how does that work? Social Security will find out what he, his earnings are because they get sent from the IRS, but there's a mm -hmm. huge lag on that. And so Social Security will tell you, if you've been approved, they'll tell you, you have to report all future earnings to us as long as you're a Social Security disability recipient. And that's why they want to know if you start earning money because there is uh, something called the trial work period. And there is a way to what I like to call graduate from the SSDI program. A lot of people don't want to stay on benefits. A lot of mm -hmm. people want to use them temporarily so that they can get better, so that they can go back to work. We just talked about how that's mm -hmm. built into the system. But if you don't report your income and Social Security finds out about it two years later, mm -hmm. you can get hit with an enormous overpayment. In other words, benefits you were paid that you shouldn't have been. Mm -hmm. And that causes a world of problems for people because then you, you went into this asking for disability benefits. And in the end, you owe the government money oh. that, that they paid you that you shouldn't have had. So the best thing to do is to be honest, to report your earnings and say, yep, I just got a job. Here it is. Here's what I'm earning. And there's a, a procedure that I talk about, of course, in the book. There's a dollar amount per month that you're allowed to earn while you're in the application process. And then there's another dollar amount that's actually lower that you're allowed to earn while you're a beneficiary receiving benefits, where if you're under that amount, it doesn't count against you at all. You can earn under that amount for as long as you want and stay on benefits, assuming you continue to medically qualify. Mm -hmm. Once you exceed that amount, you can now earn as much as you want and receive benefits for a period of nine months. You get nine months in the trial work period to see if you can do it, see if you can go back to work where you can get your salary plus benefits. And that's because we don't want to cut people off. If we cut people off, there's a disincentive to go back to work, right? Yes. So the, so the government has this program where you can get both. You can earn money and get your benefits as you transition out, you're only allowed to do that for nine months. Nine months is the point where the government says, you've graduated. They give you two extra months of benefits while you you're, you complete that life transition and then they cut you off. One of the unfortunate things is that also means your Medicare gets cut off. So hmm. people who are transitioning out of the SSDI program need to make sure that if they're going back to employment, that that employment offers health insurance or that they have it somewhere else, maybe through their spouse, maybe mm -hmm. through the VA, if they were in the military, something so where they won't need Medicare again until they reach retirement age. I remember when my mother was applying for um, helping my, her sister apply for social security, my, my aunt had was paranoid schizophrenic. Um, she said she heard from the nursing home or whatever that everyone gets denied on their first time through. Yeah. Do you feel like it's 
do, are people just better off starting with an advocate with some sort of attorney to help them so to save time and to just do it correctly in the first place because right. it does seem like the forms are really complicated even for a person with a master's degree it is a it is a little bit of hyperbole at the initial level about 25 to 30 percent of people are approved and i know someone who was approved at the initial level but he had a neurocognitive situation and he was hospitalized and there were thousands of pages of medical evidence it's not your typical situation right but that's the kind of story of someone who gets approved at the initial level but it's not zero it's about 25 to 30 but the vast majority of people are denied i talk in the book about why this is um, part of it is because when you initially apply your application goes to a state agency and the state agencies also administer the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. So there's a conflict of interest. They don't want to approve people for SSI Title 16 disability benefits because then those people are also going to have access to Medicaid in most circumstances. So part of the reason people are denied is poorly developed medical records. Part of it is confusing forms. Part of it is because the Social Security disability system is designed in order to deny people. But I also talk in the book about how to find a representative mm -hmm. and how the representatives get paid. And the way they get paid creates a bit of a disincentive for, take, for them to take the case too early on in the process. So it may be the case that you can find a representative before you even file your application. And I thoroughly recommend that everyone have a representative. But I also explain in the book why a representative may say to you, I can't really help you right now. Go ahead and file your application. Go through the process at the state agency level. And if you're denied, come back to me and I'll mm -hmm. help you with your appeal. And part of that is because they can't get paid if, you, if they win your case at the initial level. They're not going to get paid anything. But part of that may be that they're genuinely telling you there's no hearing to prepare for, there's no legal brief to write for the judge, there's not a lot that I can do to help you at that initial level. Because, I mean, a representative can't walk, they're not going to walk into your doctor's office with you. They're not going to tell you, they're, uh, they're not going to tell your treating source, here's what you need to put in a medical opinion. The representatives are great at what they do, but what they do is take the medical evidence that's given to them and advocate on the claimant's behalf. So it's really the responsibility of the claimant and their support system to understand how the system works, how the decisions are made, the definition, definition of disability, what step of the sequential evaluation they might be thinking they'll be found disabled at, how the appeals process works, that's all things that you have to do by way of self-education so that you can work with your professional representative, but they're not going to do these things for you. And that's ultimately why I wrote the book, Social Security Disability Revealed. And it's right there in the subtitle, why it's so hard to access benefits. I want people to understand where the barriers are along the way, but also what you can do about it. I want people to know how to navigate the system because there's a lot you can't control and there's a lot you can control. 
So for example, there was a judge in my office who was about a 20% payer, a low payer. He approved one out of every five cases. Well, you can't control which judge you get. So you might be assigned that judge and you have to know how to work within the system with a judge that's only paying one out of every five cases. You have to know how to make your medical record really solid, make sure there's no gaps in the timeline, make sure that medical opinion is a functional assessment like we talked about earlier, because that's a judge that's using a lot of discretion and not in the claimant's favor, right? That judge is taking liberties to use his discretion everywhere he can to interpret the evidence to deny claims. So as the claimant, you have to know that and you have to know how to put together a medical record that's so airtight that there's no room for interpretation. Something like we talked about earlier where you can't, my patient is only concentrating half the time, is only listening to my instructions half the time. Therefore, my opinion is that this person would only be able to take instruction from a supervisor for four hours of an eight hour day. There's no interpretation there, right? Mm -hmm. In that medical opinion, that judge takes a case like that and says, this is the one out of five. I'm going to pay this one and I'm going to move on and I'm going to look for denials in other places where I have more nebulous evidence. So that's why I wrote the book. I want people to know what they can control and to be able to take charge or have their family members help them if they need to. So they know what to put in their application documents, what other information to give social security and how to put together a medical record and a story that their representative can present to social security to give them the best possible chance at having their claim approved. No, that's why what you're giving is such a godsend because, you know, it's to get that insider look of how this is actually, you know, how the sausage is actually made and to have those tips. So whether it's, you know, like someone like me, if I'm a provider who's writing this, like I'm going to be able to use your book to like, look at this, to help make, you know, say, okay, again, this is really helpful. What did I actually observe? What did I see? That's going to be more beneficial than giving my opinion about things. Or if it's a family member or the, the person themselves who are dealing with the disability, that instead of being intimidated to get started on the paperwork, to look at the book and look into this and say, hey, no, this is something that's manageable. You can get, if you have this disability, you can get the money, but you, you have to know a little bit how to speak the language. Exactly. And so I think it's, and, and, and people, are there any other just surprises or things that people would not guess that you're just, that you've revealed that just, you know, any other tips that you can say that people would not, like the thing about that you mentioned about the Medicaid piece, I never would have thought of that. So anything else that you could just tell us that people, you know, like, would not have guessed about the way the system works? Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole book is, right? It's all explaining, here's what Social Security tells you the way the system works. Here's what that means in plain English. Here's the rest of the story that they're not telling you. And here's an example. And throughout the book, I'm constantly giving examples because I feel like that's the best way to illustrate for people what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of places along the way where Social Security tells you they're doing something and they either tell you there's a reason or just let you presume what the reason is. And it's not the reason at all. Hmm. Uh, for example, early on in the book, I explain um, what uh, happens after you file your application. 
And in addition to looking at your own medical records, Social Security is going to send you to see a doctor that, and they'll pay for it. It's called a consultative examiner. And I'm not sure exactly what they tell people in that letter that says you have to go see this doctor. I know they tell people you have to go see the doctor or we're going to find you're not cooperating and we're going to dismiss your claim. So they're really clear with people, you have to go. But I get the impression that a lot of people think that doctor's there to help them. Oh, maybe I didn't have the most complete medical records. This is great. They're sending me to see a doctor. That doctor will tell them I'm disabled and can't work. But that's not that doctor's job. That doctor works for Social Security. Social Security is paying them. And you have to understand who that doctor is, how Social Security found them, what their motivations are, why they're being hired. And you have to know what's going to happen at that appointment and after that appointment in order to know. You have to go. You don't have a choice. You have to go. But you do have a choice in how you approach that appointment and how mm. much information you provide that doctor. You know, if someone's not on your side, maybe just give them the minimal level of cooperation because you think you're not you're not here for me. So I'll do exactly mm. what you tell me to do, but I'm not going to sit here and waste my time with you for an hour telling you all of these things when I already know what's going to be in your report. Mm hmm. And then, of course, if you know this is evidence that's going to be bad for you, you have to know how to counteract that and get other evidence that will be good for you, right? And so, you know, just to conclude here, um, again, that's why that's why I wrote the book. It's completely full of, again, it says in the subtitle, it's completely full of all of the reasons it's so hard to access benefits from before you file your application to while you're applying to what happens at the state agency level, what happens at the hearing level, all of the things that happen at the hearing that are not good for you, the claimant, the ways that the judges write the decisions mm -hmm. and the ways that the judges use the law to take what might be a really strong case for an approval and the way they can use the law and interpret things in order to turn that into a denial if they really want to deny your claim. You got to know all these things. And from your perspective as the medical provider, if you know all these things, you know what your claim, your clients are going through. And you might be able to then understand the language that you're using, right? If they say, I got a hearing coming up and there's going to be a medical expert or I get a hearing coming up and, the, and there's the vocational experts going to testify about the jobs that I can do. And if you think I can't do some job, certain jobs, could you fill out this questionnaire for me so that I am anticipating this is going to be bad for me and maybe you could help me out with some evidence that might be good for me. So if you know what's going on and you know what's happening, you can help your clients. If they know what's going on, certainly they can help themselves. And that's why I wrote the book, Social Security Disability Revealed. I really wanted to make sure that there was a one-stop shop resource out there for people where you know they don't have to go into Facebook groups or read this book and read this book that says something separate. I wanted it to all be in one book so that it could be explanatory. It could also be uh, a reference resource. You could go back if you're having your hearing and just read the chapter on the hearing to remind yourself what's happening. And I also put a glossary in the back, a plain language glossary, where I 
provide a term and I just say, here's what that means in mm -hmm. plain English. So you can understand throughout the book, but also throughout the whole process, what certain terminology means. If you get a letter from Social Security, you don't know what that means, you can look it up. So that was why I wrote the book. I wanted to explain what Social Security is not telling you. I wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit and reveal some information that just makes the whole process intentionally difficult for people. And I wanted people to be able to use this as a resource throughout the process, whether they're a claimant or their support system or one of their medical providers. So where is the best place for people to find the book? Should they go on Amazon or to your website? Like where would be the best places for them to get it? Yeah, we're on Amazon, ebook and paperback. Uh, it's also available through Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org. If you want to support a local bookstore, you can also ask your local library to get it in both paperback and ebook. And there's links to all of that at bishonspublishing.com, B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. We've also got a detailed description of everything in the book and the table of contents. So you can just see how it's laid out and understand what we're trying to say. And the thing that I want to leave your listeners with is a little bit, this has all been a bit of a downer, right? With all the right. social it's security not a happy topic, trying it? to mess you over. So I want to just leave on a positive note, which is that you can do this. Claimants can do this. It is possible to understand this language, to understand the system, to understand where all of the barriers have been intentionally erected and to say, now that I have this information, now that I understand what's happening, I'm not scared, I'm not afraid, I'm not overwhelmed anymore. I feel empowered that I can do this. And also, even if you are denied, there's always a next step in the process. There's an appeals process. You can go to federal court if you need to. You can hire representatives that will help you. So educate yourself. And it takes a lot of the scariness away when you do that. And know that there's always something you can do. There's always a next step in the process for you to do to help move forward and give yourself the best possible chance at success. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I mean, again, I've been a social worker for decades and even talking to other social worker friends who have to help their families through this process, it's confusing. And so having a guidebook like this is really beneficial. So thank you so much. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me.